in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. All right, great to see you guys here. If you'll notice, this is, uh, I think this is my 148th sermon, and I've never stood this far back, but just out of, you know, I, I'm feeling great, feeling myself, but since my wife uh, just tested positive for COVID just a little bit ago, um, I want to be as safe as possible, so I'll preach, and then I'll scoot out of here to keep everyone safe. Um, so this is what we're talking about today, uh, and I'm excited for this. I also know that this is, a, 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 they say that Daylight Savings is the least attended Sunday uh, across America, but I think there's a little bit, a few more people here than normally would be here on Daylight Savings Day, and I think it has something to do with the sermon topic. Uh, and so I sent out an email saying something like, can women teach, can women preach, can women have authority over men, which I'm sure everyone saw the subject, like, wow, what's, what's going to happen? So last week during the Q&A, if you guys were here, uh, somebody asked a really good question and said, uh, you know, where do we stand on women in ministry? And I thought in the moment I could have given a kind of quick off-the-cuff answer. It's certainly something I've spent time thinking about over the years. But I had maybe the wisdom, and I think Amanda backed it up, to say, hey, maybe we should slow down. And instead of giving a five-minute answer that's not necessarily freshly researched, let's take a whole week on that. So I began diving into it and decided, actually, we're not going to do one week. We're going to do two weeks on this subject. So first, we'll be doing two different sort of takes. Um, you could come at this from two different angles. What evangelical churches have tended to do is they've looked toward a couple of sort of uh, well-known passages that, say, that seem to limit women's ability to lead in church. And they'll just sort of point to those and sort of turn their critical thinking off and say, all right, well, see these two passages? Enough said. We're kind of done considering this. Uh, what we're going to do is actually start on the other side of this issue, which is a sort of, uh, you could call one the negative aspect and one the positive aspect is what, what do women actually do in scripture, right? So not necessarily what does one verse or two verses uh, say throughout scripture, but what kind of leadership roles, what kind of teaching or preaching or administrative or political, governmental, exhortative, expository roles do or do not uh, women tend to take in scripture? And then what tends to be said about those roles, right? When they step into those roles, is it sort of like, oh, that's too bad. There were no men around to do those roles or like, oh, shame that she did that. What, what kind of, what's said about women who take those kind of leadership roles? So I want to say at the outset that as I was thinking through this, I kept having this sort of eerie feeling that I was sort of pulling a lot of this material from a similar place. And I kind of, I was trying to rack my brain. These are conversations that people have been having for years but then I pulled a few books off my shelf to figure out, is there one primary book that I'm getting a lot of this from? And then I pulled down a Scott McKnight book. I think it's called Blue Parakeet. Does that sound right? Blue Parakeet? Some of you, I think, are reading. There's a few books that are kind of well-known on this. And I realized that um, both partly from the book, but also a lot of just the conversations and the debates I've had in my various sort of seminary and education settings, a lot of this territory has been plowed well by a, a scholar named Scott McKnight. So I will be jumping in and out of some of his arguments. I won't be telling you every, every time I'm necessarily quoting him or not. But I want you to know, Scott McKnight, Blue Parakeet, is where some of this is going to come from. So we'll spend this week talking about what women did in the Bible, and then we'll talk next week about some of the passages that seem to limit what women may or may not be able to do in church leadership. So uh, what did women do in terms of leadership in the Bible? Let's just start walking through. What kind of leadership did women have in the Old Testament? So first, I want to talk about Miriam. Miriam is the sister of Moses, the one that snatched him out of the Nile. 
And she is the forgotten third of the kind of leadership triad between Moses and Aaron, and then you also had Miriam. It's interesting because she's forgotten by us, but she's not forgotten in Scripture as one of the three leaders of this group. So uh, she is described, uh, so there's Moses as kind of the main lawgiver, Aaron is the priest, and she is the prophet and sort of a scriptural sort of leader, you could say, of the people. She led the people in song, in worship, and in praising God for his wonderful deliverance. And the rest of the Old Testament seems to see it that way as well. So many centuries later, many books later, in the book of Micah, it says this. It says, I brought you out of Egypt. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. Micah 6, 4. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. So it seems that Miriam was a leader in her time. She was, you, you might call her a worship leader uh, over the people, a prophet and sort of worship leader. And then the rest of Old Testament scripture also sees her as a kind of third part of this triumvirate uh, of leadership. Now, uh, you might remember, uh, she ended up making some mistakes, she and Aaron, uh, but the way that God deals with her mistakes is never to put her down and say, you never had any authority in the first place. It sort of grants that she's made some mistakes like Aaron has, but she is a prophet and leader. All right, uh, I want to move on to Deborah. Deborah was called a judge of Israel, which is one of my least favorite translation choices uh, in the history of the English language as to why we say judge. Um, a better phrase, this is from Scott McKnight, is that, this is funny, uh, to use modern analogies, he calls her uh, the president, the pope, and Rambo all bundled up. Uh, so a judge was kind of a political, religious, and military leader all at once. Political, religious, military leader. And she, for, for quite some time, was the primary judge, the primary leader of Israel. And again, she sometimes, what's sad is people get into two partisan of camps on this. They're either all for uh, or they'll sort of focus only on some passages in Scripture and ignore the others, or vice versa. And for some people who um, won't even let women touch a microphone in church, they will try to ignore these passages, or they'll say things like this, like, well, you know, the, the fact that Deborah was a leader is really just a sign that all of the men were just pathetic, right? So not, none of the men stepped in, and so in this sort of drastic worst-case scenario where none of the men would lead, she had to step in, but really that was never what it was meant to be in the first place, right? She wanted to keep her sort of needle and thread and be in the home, but, you know, she had to go be a military, political, civic, religious leader because none of the men were up for it. And that's clearly not how the Bible paints this, that she was the best, therefore she was the leader. So there's not a hint of that sort of, sadly, men weren't filling that role kind of language. And there's another woman here uh, that I was not as familiar with. And then when I was reading back through Scott McKnight's book, I was like, oh, right, I forgot this story. Who has heard of Huldah? H-U-L-D-A-H, Huldah. Okay, so we're in the time of King Josiah, many remember this, that the Israelites had actually lost the Torah, right, because of various uh, expulsions being sent out of Israel and then coming back and all the rest. Uh, they had lost the Torah. And so they were, in a sense, a kind of uh, people without a shepherd. They were sheep without a shepherd, they didn't have scripture. And then it was discovered that there was a Torah buried. I forget where. It was like in the cornerstone of the temple. It was somewhere, somewhere special in the temple. There was a Torah that had been buried and preserved, almost like a time capsule. And they discovered it, and a scribe reads some of it to Josiah. But they're, they're leaders. They're rulers. They're not necessarily like religious scholars. So they need to go fetch somebody to dig into this. Is this like the real Torah? Is this just like a half real Torah, but then there's a lot of other weird stuff in it? 
What's the truth here? It's sort of like if one of our own governmental leaders found, imagine an ancient text that not many people spoke that language anymore. You know, if, if Joe Biden found like a Greek New Testament without any English lettering, he'd be like, oh, this looks like a religious text. I don't know. He'd probably call a scholar, right, to come to the White House and figure it out for him. This is what Josiah is doing. And he has some choices. He has five prophets nearby in his court. Four of them you'll know by name. Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. And the fifth was Huldah. Now, what's interesting is the first four, why do you know them by name? Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. They all have books named after them. So these are not just like male prophets. These are like the best prophets ever, right? They have books in the Old Testament named after their work. And then there's another prophet, Huldah. And as you can guess it, based on how I'm framing this sermon, he does not call the people whose books we read over and over and over and have preached through. He calls Huldah a woman. She's the one called to examine, read, and verify the Torah. Now, a lot of scholars, without much of a leap here, are saying, what does that say about her ability with the scriptures to sort of uh, sign off on this being legitimate or not? A lot, of, a lot say, she was recognized as the superior, the strongest, the best interpreter of Scripture, even among those five. The one who is most scholarly, most able to sort of call this what it is, would be Huldah. So she comes to the king, and over every priest and every rabbi and every general and every prophet, she reads through this Torah, and then she gives it her stamp of approval, her affirmation. And that Torah then became the basis for the Torah that kept being, sorry, the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, in case you're not familiar. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, that's what the Torah is. So her then affirming this Torah, that became the basis of the Torah that the Jews made sort of the standard, and still to this day is the one that's in your Bibles translated into English. So you are still reading the affirmed version of what Huldah said, this is the true Torah. That's been the basis of the Old Testament that Jesus read and that we still read to this day. So you could say in a way that even though, of course, most, most of Scripture was written by men, given the times and cultures that they're from, the stamp of approval, its usage, its sort of uh, baptism, its blessing to sort of be revived into culture came from this uh, sort of senior female prophet. And so in the Old Testament, this is a direct quote from McKnight, women spoke for God, they led the nation in every department, they sanctioned scripture, and they guided nations back to the path of righteousness. You can see where this message is going, and I'll tell you right now, this is not a view that I have had for a long time. So there's a sort of journey and a kind of humbling that's happened to me as I've been digging into this, uh, into this view, because we all have our background, we all have kind of the framing that we have, and I could just say that I was raised under the sort of uh, the two-verse school of thought, right? Like, it says here this, so we're just going to turn our brains off and not think. And then people kind of challenged me and said, hey, what do women actually do in the Bible? Do they lead? Do they preach? Do they fight? Do they teach? Oh, oops. There are some. Not many, right? Because we're, we're talking about male-dominated societies, so you would expect there not to be a 50-50 mix. But there is quite a bit of it. And it's shocking that none of it ever seems to receive any shame or, oh yeah, but if there were men, then it wouldn't be like that. These women constantly are doing this work, a minority, certainly, but they're doing this work and there's no shame about it. It's sort of like, yeah, this is what needed to happen. This is the right thing. She was the best. She was the strongest. She was the smartest. 
so you guys can follow along with me on my journey here. So let's move into the New Testament. I'm going to read through a few more figures. Junia is a figure in the New Testament not many people know well. Let me read you a verse. This is from Paul in Romans 16. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So the scriptures in the early church refer to this Junia as being outstanding or prominent or a leader among the other apostles. She was up there. So this is, a, you know, you have your 12 disciples, and then you had a lot of other big-time leaders in the early church. So like Barnabas is a classic example of someone who was not one of the 12, but he was one of the major leaders in the early church. This is the category we're talking about, that this Junia was outstanding, as in like one of the leaders of leaders. We're talking top five, top 10 of all of the apostles in the early church. And so uh, let's see here. Uh, scriptures and the early church referred to her as outstanding or prominent, and so she would have been up there with all of these leaders. Uh, John Chrysostom, one of the, argued to be maybe the best preacher in Christian history, an early church father who spoke Greek as his native language. So when scholars today are always trying to figure out, like, not just like the dictionary definitions of words, but like, what did it feel, like, what did that word really taste like? What did, what did a native speaker think of that? We'll often go to John Chrysostom and other native Greek speakers and say, what did they think about this? We'll read them, and then it'll help us to make our interpretation. And he says this, he says, indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman, Junia, must have been that she was even deemed worthy of the title of an apostle. Now again, that sounds kind of sexist to say that, but remember his time. He's living in the fourth or fifth century AD. Women had virtually zero leadership in public life. And he says, but she was one of the the greatest of the apostles. So imagine truly how great she must have been to have overcome the culture that she lived in and had this great seat at the table. She must have truly been outstanding because she was swimming upstream whereas so many of her male counterparts were just swimming downstream. All right, now uh, the smoking gun actually, this is interesting. Um, let's see how do I can explain this in a way that makes sense. Uh, when you look at all of the different Greek copies of the New Testament, just stay with me if you guys are like, if you're like, I'm not interested in this stuff, you could just come back in two minutes. But stay with me if you like the geeky text critical stuff. When you compare all the 5,000 manuscripts, or especially the oldest, you know, 100 or so manuscripts or 200, uh, you, every once in a while you'll see spelling discrepancies or little mistakes or whatever, things that someone will do by accident or sometimes on purpose maybe as they're copying it to smooth over the text. And of course, by and large, the earlier you get, the cl closer to Christ, the better those copies are going to be. Not always, but normally. And what they found is the earliest copies of this text have Junia as a female. And somewhere along the way, some scribe, oops, just added a little S, Junius, which is a male name. And so uh, people who don't like the idea of women leading or being an apostle, uh, because that's quite threatening if you have a certain view and you're really committed to it, People who don't like the idea of women being an apostle will say, oh, well, this is actually Junius, and it was just a text-critical error, and someone left off the S at one point or another. Actually, the way text criticism works is exactly the opposite. Uh, and I'll just say it like this. Um, if you have 100 copies of Scripture, and 80 of them say one thing, and 20 say the other, in a non-controversial situation, oftentimes the 80 would win, right? If, especially if they're all of similar dates and similar trust. But when you have something that's super debated and really controversial and one reading is clearly the harder reading, the one that would be harder for society to stomach, and the other one is just goes down smooth, it tends to be actually the minority one that has tended to be correct. And scholars know this. So the harder reading 
tends to be the truer. So I'll just say this. If in 80 manuscripts, Junius was a male, and in 20, Junia was a female, there's actually incredibly strong, nearly you know, universally agreed upon evidence that the female reading is the correct one, because you would never change a male apostle in that society to a female apostle and then have it become the majority text, right? But you could see how someone would take a female apostle and add an S, and then it would sort of be the smoother, easier reading, right? Okay, so if you guys are like, dude, I'm not interested in that, just come back to me. Know that uh, the smoking gun here from a, like a text background perspective is that well-meaning scribes, maybe not so well-meaning, uh, made an accident or deliberately changed Junia to be a male uh, when we actually have really good evidence that this is always Junia from the beginning. So we have a female apostle. Okay, so uh, let me talk about Priscilla. We're probably more familiar with Priscilla. I think I preached a sermon about how Priscilla is one of the leading contenders for the author of the letter to the Hebrews. We don't know who the author is uh, officially, but uh, the leading contenders are Apollos, Priscilla, Barnabas, Luke. Uh, some people say Paul, probably not Paul. Um, now, let me read this text. This is going to be our scriptural text, but I decided to move it down further in the sermon. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately, more accurately. Let me just read that last bit. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, so there's a few things going on here. Apollos is, uh, if you guys remember from another passage of scripture, he's called a super apostle. He was the most eloquent speaker, and if you've read Hebrews out loud, you know it's the most beautiful book probably of the New Testament. Uh, it's just, it could be his uh, he's an eloquent speaker. He basically, he, ba he gave Paul a, an inferiority complex. So there's a few times when Paul is like, I may not be a super apostle, my apologies. He's talking about Apollos. Whenever Paul is like, I'm sorry, I'm not a super apostle, he's talking about Apollos. That's always who he's talking about because Apollos had this golden tongue and everyone loved to listen to him preach and he was amazing. So that's who Paul had an inferiority complex to, which is funny because over the years, Paul has sort of won the day and, and nobody really knows Apollos that well. Uh, anyway, this is Apollos who is amazing at what he does. And as he's preaching, it says, doesn't say Aquila and Priscilla. It says Priscilla and Aquila. The order matters. In our culture, it might not. Then the leader, the sort of the, the more intellectual, hefty, uh, smarter, stronger leader type was always mentioned first. Okay, so in the New Testament, almost always, the leader is mentioned first. So when Paul first gets introduced, it's always Barnabas and Paul for like two or three examples. And then very quickly, the church learns who the real leader is. And now, then it's always Paul and Barnabas, right? You see what I'm saying? It switches. Barnabas and Paul, and then it's, oh, it's Paul and Barnabas for the rest of Scripture. Okay, so sometimes you get Aquila before Priscilla, which is probably custom. But Priscilla was such a heavy hitter that she almost always comes before her husband in these lists. And it says, Priscilla and Aquila heard what he was preaching. They pull him aside, the super apostle that gives Paul the heebie-jeebies. They pull him aside and they're like, hey, you're doing okay, but you kind of miss some things, right? And so they, they, they fill him in and they teach him like, this is the full gospel. This is the true gospel. And then he goes on to then be this sort of even better guy who Paul then feels small from. Uh, so he wasn't quite at that status yet. But we're saying that here is Priscilla correcting this soon-to-be super apostle. Her name comes first, and she's a very strong candidate for the uh, writing of the letter 
to the Hebrews, or maybe she and her husband together. So we're talking like, man, you want to talk about correcting, you, know, you want to talk about teaching men, having authority over men, correcting men, exhorting men. She has all of this. All right, I've got, uh, I think, one more woman here. Phoebe. She is called the deacon, the uh, host, the sort of founder of the church at Sencre. I don't know how exactly how to pronounce it. And uh, as the one hosting this church, she would be de facto one of its leaders. Now, what's really cool about Phoebe is that some of these other women I've mentioned have, uh, they're married. Phoebe is not married, so we don't know if she's single or widowed, but some, some people could say, oh yeah, well, married women really just have their authority and their husband, and even if they're the stronger hitter of the two, it's like the authorities and the husband. Phoebe does not fit that description. So Paul sees Phoebe as a great benefactor. She helps financially support the church. Uh, wealthy women on through early church history were often called a Phoebe because Phoebe was known for supporting financially the work of the church. But also, uh, she was really, seems really wise, really smart. And so let me tell you guys, maybe burst a little bubble here about how scripture often was composed. There is a, a letter in which Paul says something like, you know, see how large the letters are when I write by my own hand, right? Because he couldn't see well and he wasn't a great writer. He, like, his actual penmanship wasn't great. Very rarely did Paul write his own letters, except for that one time when he's like, sorry that my letter looks awful, right? I have this like kids writing, right? Because I, I can't see. Um, normally, he had a scribe next to him. They, they're called an amanuensis. And so most of what you read, say, from Paul was actually spoken. Paul would speak to an amanuensis, and then he would have one person as a kind of stand-in audience. And he would speak, because that was the art he was trained in, not writing. He was trained in speaking. So he would speak. That's where he was comfortable you know, today we're comfortable writing normally, but not speaking, then it was the reverse. So he would speak, and his scribe would sort of distill what he's saying. So the letter of the Romans, if you read it out loud, might only take you an hour, hour and a half. But when Paul actually gave it, it was probably a, a whole day or a day and a half long sort of event. So it would, been, it would have been much more. And then his scribe, his amanuensis, would have been sort of condensing it and, and, and finding a way to make it all fit on a scroll that, that would fit into one uh, book. And then there would have been one audience member present, and their task was to then roll up this scroll and take it to the people who were to receive this scroll, this letter. And then naturally, of course, because writing was seen as an inferior art, when people had questions on the other end, hey, what did Paul mean when he said this? Well, guess what? You've got the audience member right there who was there for the full speaking of it. That was Phoebe. So Paul spoke the letter of the Romans. I think Tertius or whatever his scribe's name is wrote it. And Phoebe was there the whole time hearing the whole thing. And then she took it to the Romans. She read it out loud over the Romans. And then when they had questions about it, she would have been the one expositing it, right? So they say that Phoebe is the first expositor, the first commentator of Romans. She's the first one preaching through it, essentially. It was Paul's work, but she's the one teaching it to the church. Just like I might teach the book of Romans to you, she was reading it and then expounding on it. When people are like, what did he mean about the olive tree thing? You know, well, olive branch, I don't get it. And then she would have filled it in uh, and, and told them what it, what it meant because she was there for the full hearing. So uh, she's likely the first commentator, expositor of scripture in the New Testament. So uh, women in the New Testament, though, of course, less often than men, given their, you know, their, their overall place in society, but in the New Testament, we have women apostles, women teachers, women commentators, women preachers, uh, expositing the text over men, women informing men, women pulling men aside and correcting their theology, and women leading church plants or house churches. 
Uh, and we have all of these leadership positions, not only within married or widowed women, but it even seems, or, or it even seems uh, widowed and single women. Uh, and again, just as in the Old Testament, there's never a time when it's like, oh darn, you know, Phoebe's the best person we had. You know, there was no men in the city that were capable of it. So I guess, last case scenario, here's Phoebe. There's none of that stuff, right? It's like Phoebe's the right one for it. Priscilla's the right one for the job, uh, you know, there's no like, oh, too bad that we had to reach out to a woman in this case. There's no shame, just like in the Old Testament. So what does this all mean? It means that throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, women have had the very highest, not just high, but the very highest positions of leadership. Now, again, as a percentage, they would have had fewer than men, which is not a surprise, given uh, in, in society at large, they almost never were educated. They were not often literate, like men sometimes had the chance. I think literacy for men was 5 or 10%, and for women it was less than 1%. So there's just not many opportunities to become a great religious leader when only 1 in 100 women could read. Uh, so it, it's fewer, but they still were certainly leaders in all of these capacities. Now, the million-dollar question is, okay, well, if you live in a society where that's not a woman's place at, at large in society, right? If, if women aren't so put down, you know, if in the modern era where there's a much more equal ethos between men and women, and that sort of depends a little bit, you know, are you talking about the CEO range where men still tend to uh, be, be more favored or at the sort of high school and college level where women easily carry the day? Uh, we certainly live in, a, live in a much more equal time. So if they had all of these positions back then, the great question for the church today is, well, do they have these positions in your church today? Can they? If they had all these positions in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, could they not today? Especially when we're living in a time when all women, like all men, can read, can lead, have opportunities for education, for crafting their skills. That's a huge question that we have to ask. Now, again, many of you will be aware that are, there are a couple of passages in the New Testament that seem to directly contradict all of these examples that we just went through. They seem to forbid women leading in these kinds of ways. Uh, and so, again, some churches will basically quote those two passages and sort of turn their brains off, not really thinking critically anymore about the issue. Like, well, we got these two verses. I'm not going to look at all these other stories. I'm not going to look at the description of how the church actually worked. I'm going to look at these one you know, little section of verses, and then that'll be it for me. I'm good. Uh, but neither of those perspectives is wise, right? To either ignore these passages over here or to only go with the stories over here, right? We often come to this issue with a really strong leading, and then we just want to selectively take the one or the other and not think beyond that. So what is going on if we have a lot of women in all of the positions of leadership that you can really name in the New Testament, but then you also have verses that seem to limit women from those positions. So what's going on about that? So uh, we're, we're out of time for today. I'll just take a few minutes to close here. Uh, don't worry, Joseph, you don't have to sweat. We'll get out of here. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so what is happening here? And, and often, if the New Testament or, or the Bible at large seems to say two completely contradictory things, it's not that the Bible is wrong. Often it's that we are separated from two or 3,000 years from its writing. We have almost no knowledge of its context or history, right, as we're just sitting here. And sometimes it can be helpful to dive in and hear a deeper explanation of why things are the way they are. So like one good example here is that uh, Scripture tells women to wear head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11. But no, no one here, no women here really are wearing head coverings. Now why is that? Because that's only, it seems to be, 
So if you were to just favor that verse, say, well, right here, there's been movements of the church that say, well, right here, it says women should wear head coverings. But we know that if you do some cultural digging, you find out that, well, none of the Old Testament women wore head coverings. Israeli women never wore head coverings. That wasn't a part of their culture. And it wasn't a part in, of Roman culture. And the women that we know in the New Testament didn't wear it. But somehow it seems to be something commanded to Corinthian women. And we don't really understand why, right? Paul wasn't, making, wasn't asking other women to wear head coverings. But for some reason in Corinth, they were asked to wear them. That's why we don't wear them, right? So that's, women are told to wear head coverings, but that letter was sent to Corinth. And we know that Israeli women and others were not wearing them. And so there's certain cultural things that sometimes if you just see the verse that says, wear head coverings, you can be like, oops, like, do we get this wrong? Do all women need to wear head coverings? Well, no. There was some sort of culture in Corinth. There's all sorts of uh, ideas on this. We won't get into it, but there's some sort of um, questions about that the only women who didn't wear head coverings in Corinth were prostitutes. And so maybe there was a cultural thing for like honest, you know, moral women or whatever to wear a head covering, whatever. So what I'm saying is when the Bible seems to disagree with itself, it's not that the Bible is disagreeing with itself. It's that we don't understand the culture, right? So how come none of these women are wearing head coverings? And then in 1 Corinthians, it says to do so. Maybe there's something that we need to learn first before we can interpret this correctly. And I would put up for, uh, for discussion that Women in leadership is the same thing, right? Why does it say once or twice that women can't have this kind of position? But then all throughout the Old and New Testaments, women do have that position, and there's no shame or sort of second-guessing about it. Maybe there's something more that we need to understand about Scripture before we can properly interpret this, because Scripture does not disagree with itself. Uh, so with that, it's kind of a it's a to-be-continued, right? There's no real conclusion to this sermon, but come back next week. We're going to be talking about those two kind of flagged passages that a lot of people will camp on, and we'll talk through them and give different explanations for what they're getting at, okay? So uh, with that, let me pray, and then I'll invite us downstairs. Father, we thank you so much for all of the great male and female leaders in the history of your church, and we pray for humility that we would not... Um, that we would not minor on the, or major on the minors, but major on the majors in our church. We pray that we would not impose limits that you and your church and your scriptures did not impose, and that you would give us grace uh, to deal charitably with those uh, that we view this differently from. Uh, we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.